Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Wirecast. The Wirecast is brought to you by the Wisconsin International Review, a student-run foreign policy and international relations magazine, or The Wire for short. My name is Sam Alida, editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Wire. I am joined here today by Connor Heidi, an editor for The Wire and a graduated senior who studied political science in Russian. Today, in WSEM's production studio, hovering above East Campus Mall, we are discussing partisan polarization and how it affects the U.S. foreign policy. So, Connor, there has been this long-held belief, uh, at least since the end of World War II, that partisan politics should stop at the water's edge. So, so the quote actually comes from uh, Arthur Vandenberg in 1947, defending uh, Harry Truman, President Truman. And he said, quote, we must stop partisan politics at the water's edge pretty much what I just said. Um, But the belief is that it doesn't matter what the letter is next to your name. When it comes to foreign policy, you don't, you're on the same page with everybody else. You're an American rather than a Republican or Democrat. Exactly. No partisan politics are happening. So, and so that belief held strong, very strong throughout the Cold War. There were debates on the, the fringes about like the best way to go through with a foreign policy, but is never whether or not the president's decision on a foreign policy was the best one. Uh, recently, though, I think we've seen that change a little bit. I would absolutely agree with that. And I mean, I think part of the difference is throughout the Cold War, you had an enemy, a distinct one specific enemy of the communist threat to U.S. capitalism and democracy and all that. And I think now we don't have that singular enemy anymore. I mean, you have the broader, the war on terrorism kind of thing going on, and but that's not a definitive singular enemy kind of thing. Yeah. But I think politics still needs to stop uh, at the water's edge uh, for the fact that most of our enemies at this current time do not face the same kind of constitutional switch and flip-flop that we do. Um, And they have much longer-term plans and that when we do our flip-flopping on everything uh, or argue in the kind of international sense, we make ourselves weaker in combating that kind of long-term vision of these, like, enemies of America kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a problem that arises when we look at this stuff is policy is just starting to switch between administrations, and it's becoming a very dramatic swing where where uh, different policies will, like the policy itself will switch sides uh, depending on who's the president. Not only just the policy, but how people talk about policies. It could be the exact same policy from one administration to another, but just for the fact that it was a Democrat becoming a Republican or vice versa, suddenly it is either has gone from the worst thing in the world to the best thing in the world or vice versa. And I think that hurts American foreign policy probably more than anything at this point. Yeah. I think the rhetoric that follows any policy change or any policy decision is the type of rhetoric that um, is is probably the biggest part problem that we'll see with uh, this partisanship. So the belief that politics should stop at the water's edge is the belief that 
policies should be held through administrations, that there should be tweaks, there should be new ways to look at attacking that policy, but um, we kind of come together and surround that. But uh, as we've seen throughout the country uh, on all sorts of issues, partisanship is rising, and that's really starting to bleed over into foreign policy. And that's not to say that there hasn't been partisanship in foreign policy, but I think really now, more than ever, you're seeing it actually have an effect abroad. And I think the other part of this partisanship in foreign policy is the fact that when you have that partisanship, then you leave yourself open to things like Russian influence into our internal politics because they realize if they get a certain group in power, then they actually have more of a potential to accomplish their goals because they have a friendlier administration in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I mean, I think that even this partisan politics uh, is a pretty recent phenomenon relative to the end of the Cold War even. Sure. That I think that H.W. Bush, Clinton, and then the first few years of um, Bush 44 or 43 uh, were all surrounded by cohesive politics, a lack of partisanship on their foreign policies. Generally speaking, I think that H.W. Bush, uh, Clinton, and Bush 43 all had uh, a pretty fair amount of public or bipartisan support with their policies. Sure. I mean, like, also think about what was happening in the various times. You had the end of the Cold War for the 90s. That's pretty obvious. You have a fairly distinct opponent to keep yourselves cohesive, united against Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, And then the beginning years of Bush 43, you had 9-11. And I mean, I don't think you're going to hear anyone right after 9-11 going, this is a bad idea. Let's (laughs) let's not do that. You'd have been thrown out of Congress. Yeah, I think you'll find, uh, you'll get a lot of political commentators who, when discussing and relitigating the Iraq war, will point out the fact that Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, other Democratic senators voted to um, authorize attacks in Iraq, that they voted for the Iraq war. And I think, but I think though that the Iraq war and especially the first couple years of it were a fairly watershed moment in this partisanship in foreign policy. Sure, yeah. Um, but I think we're really starting to see it uh, with the Iran deal. Absolutely. I mean, that the Iran deal started all the way back in Bush 43, and then it was picked up by Obama. And when Obama picked it up, that really switched how the Republicans felt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, with them, almost all of them, except for... Mm, five or six of them. Yeah, just a small handful. Yeah, all signed on to a letter from Senate Republicans to the uh, letters or leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran, essentially stating that uh, they just wanted to make sure that the leaders of Iran understand that there's uh, a difference between executive negotiation and congressional approval, um, and that the Republicans, if they get a Republican president, are going to possibly change or completely get rid of the deal and they should understand that in their negotiations, which I think just the fact that during negotiations, Congress felt that it was a smart idea to kind of undercut the president, that that shows just absolutely like extreme polarization in terms of like a foreign policy aspect. Because I think 
there, that would have been unheard of in the Cold War. Like, imagine that you're mm-hmm. negotiating with Gorbachev, and it's like, hey, I've just received uh, a couple uh, letters here from some of your congressmen. Yeah, saying, uh, congressional um, Democrats. You might be, all... yeah, you might be gone in a few years. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's absolutely right. This was originally a Republican policy that definitely had some Democratic opposition. Then Obama gets in office, and I think astutely recognized that he should pursue that policy and did and it switched from being a republican policy to democratic policy and you're absolutely right i think the fact that that letter was specifically from congressional republicans not just from members of congress but congressional republicans i think makes uh an important point to how partisan foreign policy has become and then uh, I mean, just the fact that the this Iran deal was then has then since been canceled, or the U.S. has pulled out of it, is the words that people like to use. I mean, it's pulled out because I don't think the rest of the members have yeah scrapped it. Yeah. Either way, though, it's just interesting to see how, in, in this case, the Republicans have really just switched uh, entirely on what this is because this is this is what diplomacy is meant for anyway and i mean this is it's also interesting to look at that type of partisanship that the iran deal has become an obama point uh in relation to trump's negotiations with north korea we won't we won't get into all the details surrounding that just that both in both instances there's a lot of saber rattling and a lot of sanctions to get the nuclear power to the table to then negotiate a peaceful resolution, which worked with Iran. I think everybody hopes that it works with North Korea, but it's interesting to see how there's this almost cognitive dissonance between the negotiations with Iran and negotiations with North Korea. It seems like they don't understand that things they will do with Iran will not immediately have an effect with North Korea, where I think that was a statement from someone in the North Korean administration that uh, how can we trust anything you're going to do when you've just pulled out of a agreement with a nuclear power or a a nuclear agreement? Yeah, I mean, I think we've both been on record saying that pulling out of it's a bad idea. But beyond just the what that means for the negotiations between the two, it also is like it's, it's the same blueprint for both that the end goal is to have a treaty where the country does not have nuclear weapons. Uh, and and that, that was successful in Iran, yet Republicans weren't satisfied. And were, yet Republicans are hoping for that to be same thi- that same thing to be successful with North Korea. That and also, to some extent, I feel like this kind of flip-flopping and like cognitive dissonance and everything is partly a lack of not intelligence, but education about a lot of these foreign policy issues in terms of they get a very surface level understanding from their aides, just kind of like, what do you need to know kind of thing, but it's not really a deeper understanding of how foreign policy really operates and what kind of broad reaching uh, consequences their actions have when you send letters to foreign leaders during negotiations or when you say you're unsatisfied with an agreement that you know your allies in Europe are satisfied with and I mean other kind of 
outside of this is this is kind of the point of why it's necessary to have this lack of polarization and lack of partisanship in foreign policy is because outside of the U.S., people don't really consider you Republican or Democrat. They consider you an American and you are mm-hmm. just like America doesn't exist in Democrat America and Republican America. It's America as far as the rest of the world is concerned. Yeah. I mean, there's there's only one geographic border, no matter how much Texas wants to secede. <laughs> Um, but I, I think I think that's absolutely right. And t- to be fair, there are other Democratic examples of them flip-flopping and not allowing, and, and again, not allowing politics to stop at the water's edge. I think both the Democrat stance on Syria and on immigration are uh, good examples of this. So in Syria, um, Trump uh, actually followed through on Obama's red line and bombed uh, different Assad targets uh, in response to chemical weapons use. When Obama was considering it, at the time, he had a substantial amount of Democrat approval. But now that Trump is the one who's actually carrying out the attacks, for some reason, Democrats are all opposed to it. Suddenly he's a warmonger and, you know, this is completely out of line. Irresponsible yep. and rash. I mean, that's... I. I talk about a lot of the Republican stuff right now, mostly because they control the government. Absolutely. But that does not ever um, take away from the fact that when our Democrats are in control, they're not just as guilty of partisanship as Republicans. It's, it is a disease that has just infected all of Congress. I don't think anyone has really been safe from it. Yeah, and just because Democrats aren't in power doesn't mean that the rhetoric that you were talking about earlier isn't still a problem. Absolutely. Because these Democrats have a base that like they'll have constituents that really care about what they think and what their opinion is. And so when they come out and say that an idea that they thought was a good one five years ago is a bad one today, even though nothing really substantive, I think at least in Syria has changed. um, It, it really hurts the stability of, the electorate, the stability of trying to find a common ground if you're willing to just switch depending on who's the one actually ordering the attack. Not only that, I think it hurts good policy because if someone, if Republican or Democrat, comes up with a good policy but then everyone's flip-flopping on it, Mm -hmm. I think there are some people who are going to start to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with the policy in and of itself because they can't make up their mind on it. Yeah. I think immigration, too, is a really interesting one of these. Um, because so Democrats have been fairly consistent on being a from a humanistic perspective pro-immigration party. Um, however, Obama, as president, and there are a lot of different nuances to this debate, deported way more people than Bush did. Um, he he massively escalated deportation. There were much more raids. He, it was just a more active uh, immigration enforcement under Obama. But Democrats were really kind of silent on that while he was president. But now that Trump is president, and there are some more egregious uh, problems here, especially from a humanistic perspective, but um, every, every single alarm that Democrats have have been sounded. I think... Partly it's how the media has covered it. I don't think you really had a lot of focus on it during Obama's time. 
versus now it's become, especially with um, the dreamers and all that, I think it's become such a hot button uh, voter issue that how the media talks about it changes people's perception of it. Um, It's been, I mean, not to say that, you know, some more egregious things have happened under Trump um, with pregnant women and certain policies along those lines Losing have changed. Losing children. Yeah. What was that? Like 1,500 have been yeah. lost or something like that. Just definitely some things that not defending, um, but just more the fact that, again, with the rhetoric is around the issue, um, just beyond what people think is like, we need to decide a cohesive compromised immigration policy that's going to be maintained administration to administration because immigration is so just vitally important to the continuation and future success of the United States. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's how we've maintained a positive population growth growth versus like Europe and Japan who are starting to see a declining one. Um, it's just a smart policy to have. And I think, I think both Democrats and Republicans need to come to the table and chat about it, but that's neither here nor there at this point in time. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of problems with our immigration policy. Absolutely. And I think that on both sides of the aisle, people recognize problems. Part of the, the struggle to address these problems is that people, the problem that each side sees is different. Um, but that's, I think that's, I think that's part of just good policymaking is that people have different priorities and those are the ones that go. What I think is the problem is, like you said, that we can't just come to the table and find a comprehensive one. There, Republicans would like higher border security. Democrats would like protection for dreamers. I think that there can be that fair middle ground of spending more money on security while also giving these offers for dreamers. Um, but I think I think dreamers are also a really good, interesting place where partisan foreign policy uh, really comes to a head. So under Obama, uh, DACA was created to uh, give kind of temporary status to uh, children who were brought into this, people who brought into this country as children. And part of that was just about, you know, when to, there was a, a list of people to deport. And so the, the Obama administration preferred to deport non-children first. Um, adults. Adults. That's probably the right word. Uh, but part of the DACA program is that people came forward and then registered, essentially, to kind of get this protection. And by registering, they're telling the government where they are. Now that Trump has uh, rescinded that or has tried to rescind that, there is now a registry of children, immigrants, and Granted, these are illegal immigrants, but there's still people who have come forward to try to participate in the con- in the government and civil life freely and fairly to su- uh, the best extent that they can. Um, but because of the f- switching between administration and administration, the massive pendulum swing that really happened between Obama and Trump, these people, um, first off, are having their lives potentially ruined. But also it hurts the credibility of the United States if we want to then create this same program. Even even if we all agree to create it permanently, there's a fear that the next administration will cancel it again. Yep. I think that's just more into kind of our long-term planning <clears throat> that 
that's why not having the partisanship is so absolutely important is because it does hurt our credibility in terms of where you have like compare anything the U.S. has done in the last like 10, 15 years to uh, like the BRI out of China. Like that's that's going to be a long policy just because Xi Jinping is going to be around for a long time. Could you clarify what the BRI is? So the BRI is the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and it is an infrastructure investment program uh, by Xi Jinping and the Communist Party of China in order to make a China-centric global economy, essentially. Um, their goal is to connect um, Europe and China. Um, and kind of ironically, the Belt is a railroad going through Kazakhstan and avoiding Russia, kind of going through South Kazakhstan over to Europe. Um, and the road is actually a maritime road through the Mwaka Strait, through the Indian Ocean, um, and then connecting up through uh, or around, I don't remember if it goes around Africa um, or up through into the Mediterranean. I think it goes through up through the Mediterranean. That'd make more sense. Um, anyways, it's basically... There's actually not a really definitive policy. It's more just anything that they talk about in infrastructure investment. It is suddenly becomes kind of a BRI program. Um, but really, it's just a long, long program using China's massive amount of foreign exchange because um, they can't really bring it home because it's still their economy. But um, yeah, that's we just have nothing like that in the United States. We, we could not come up with a program that's talking about like, the success of the United States in 2050, because that's China's goal is to have China become the premier world power in 2049 or 2050, because that's the hundredth year of the Chinese Communist Party's rule. So it's just, yeah, there's there's just nothing because of our partisanship and because of this pendulum swinging and all that stuff. We could never, I just don't see a, a chance for the United States to come well, up yeah, with anything. I, th I like think this. that that's the the crux of it. So China, especially now that they've eliminated term limits and it seems that Xi Jinping's going to live forever or rule forever, uh, he can then create this type of long-term intensive policy and program that you're right would not exist in the United States that would not be able to, I don't think, be able to continue through administrations. I mean, so take, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Although it's not an infrastructure program, it is a way to make the United States a more central economy in the world. Uh, and originally, it was, again, a Bush policy that Obama continued. And although this is less about partisanship, because Hillary Clinton ended up opposing it, too, although rhetorically opposing it. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if she, she actually opposed that. I think that became a kind of unanimous the public was opposed to it just because of the rhetoric. Yeah, I it. think th I think Bernie Sanders on her left kind of forced her to say that. Yeah, yeah, really I don't I don't think Clinton actually opposed the TPP. But either way, the United States that that is an example of the United States trying to plan for a future and grow and expand the economy. Absolutely. In the same vein as the Belt and Road Initiative, yep. and China has a lot of other programs, um, but it didn't even we didn't even sign it let alone let it last for a while. The one nice thing is, though, as far as I've read, uh, the rest of the TPP countries have left a place for the United States if we 
you know, come around to it. And it uh, seems like Trump is coming around to it again, which he keeps flip flopping on that. <laughs> I, who knows? Um, but but I think one thing we could probably bet on right now, or I would bet on, is that you're going to get a lot more Democrats opposed to it if he comes around to it. Probably. So I don't know if that would be like a good thing that he would come around to it or like a bad thing. I'm, Whatever I'm it is. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think TPP is a good thing. Oh, I absolutely agree. So it's a question of just how do we get that passed sustainably. Absolutely. Um, but I think like what you're saying with the Belt and Road Initiative kind of speaks to the broader problem of partisan foreign policy is that especially, I mean, not especially now, since even during the Cold War, our enemies have the potential to stay in power way past any administration. Shout out to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Vladimir Putin has changed the constitution essentially uh, since 2000, every what, eight years? I mean, it was supposed to be, um, they couldn't have uh, multiple consecutive terms. And so he had just been alternating with the prime yeah. minister. Um, but then he doesn't do that anymore. Uh, it's just Putin forever. Yeah. Or as long as Putin wants, um, which there are rumors that like, he's not going to run again, but like realistically, he's probably going to keep running again. Yeah. Well, the thing is he, he'll keep running. And if he doesn't run again, he will just name a successor who follows his exact steps well, it will be that. the next leader of one Russia party, um, and they will probably win again. Um, yeah. Oh, whoever I mean, he names will win the next election. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that kind of always interests me about how much popular support Putin actually does have in Russia beyond just, I mean, absolutely, there is ballot stuffing and all of the shady stuff going on, but he does maintain a large base of support, and I think that's kind of representative of a lot of uh, more dictatorships that oppose America is they do maintain some amount of popular support within the country, like North Korea, like how many people, I mean, that that's a slightly different situation in terms of that's a brainwashed population, but he does maintain popular support. But and, either way, yeah, either way, I, popular support or not, I don't see any reason why Russia, North Korea, China, uh, Iran, leaders of these countries, are go- Turkey, uh, are going to give way anytime soon. Well, I think it's because they have popular support and they are able to maintain that. that there's not going to be any like surprise coup by the general population. I think they're just going to maintain their support. And that because even in America, you have just based on how the previous president did something that, you know, this voter didn't like or did something that this voter did like, suddenly they have a wildly different view or of, like, who they want. Um, I'm trying to remember. When was the last time we've gone Republican to Republican? Reagan to Bush. Reagan to Bush. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's been a while since we've gone, you know, one, like, Democrat to Democrat or Last time we went Democrat to Democrat. Was Obama getting reelected, but. Oh, you mean like that? Yeah, I I meant more like, you know, switching people. Um, yeah, I mean, the last time we went Democrat to Democrat would have been, I think it was FDR to Truman. Yeah, it's it's been a while. So for both of them, it's been quite a bit. We keep doing this kind of flip-flopping because our presidents and the administrations can't maintain popular support. I mean, 
I think I'll push back on this popular support thing. I think that there that exists, but I there's also kind of a bit of um, resignation among the populace that the Chinese Communist Party is the only way to improve your life. So what are your options? You try to oppose it when you're one of 1.4 billion people, or you just sign up and get a better life. That's fair. No, I mean, I mean that that's kind of the dictatorship versus free society kind of thing. But I mean, and so that that is a natural function of our country. And even during the Cold War, switching between administrations brought different policies. Yeah. Reagan was much more hardline than Carter. Um, the difference, though, is that these plans are allowed... It, they used to be, and then in our enemies' countries, these plans are able to persist across the eight years that a U.S. administration could potentially span. They're able for all these policies, like across both, because, I mean, at least American policy used to be, we'd have time to see what the consequences of the policy were. It Mm -hmm. wasn't just hypotheticals. I mean, the Iran deal is a great example. I don't think the Iran deal was really implemented long enough to find out if that was a good idea or not. I think it was a good idea, by the way. (laughs) Um. But like I think th- I think this really gets down to fundamental struggle that um, partis- rising partisanship creates, and I th- I th- so I think there are a lot of problems going on in this country and around the world. But I think rising partisanship in foreign policy is one that makes me very nervous sure. for our future. Yep. So, so I mean, let's look at uh, I mean I think let's look at China. I think China is going to continue to be our biggest strategic rival. Hundred percent over the next long time, at least half century. Yeah, and until something changes, and China is set up to have a relatively fit and four dictators, relatively young uh, leader, for however long, for however long he wants, which means he gets to finish all of his policies. And I'm not advocating that we ever switch to dictatorship because I think having electoral influence on policies is absolutely important. But the problem is that now that policies switch so quickly, it makes China even a more appealing ally for other countries than the United States. I mean, another example, um, especially kind of in this China context, was the Paris Climate Agreement. Yep. Like, we were pushing hard for everyone to join that. And then all of a sudden, like, Trump's like, nope. See ya. And now China's taking a leadership role in yep. climate yep. reform. And like you can you can name other examples of this, the US pulling out of the Iran deal and the fact the the amount of grandstanding that happened surrounding it uh, has made our allies in Asia nervous, has made our allies in the Middle East nervous. It makes us look less reliable. Absolutely. And even with uh, uh, John Bolton uh after the Iran deal was saying uh, that it's a possibility that the U.S. could sanction Europe uh, if they continue to talk to Iran. I think that's just talk because uh, I don't think the U.S. would actually sanction our European allies. But the fact that that's even anyone in the United States government is willing to say that, I think, shows just a level of polarized partisanship that we haven't had in a long, long time. So, so it's definitely a problem. I think I think it's still worth mentioning that there are other places though that 
partisan foreign policy does not happen. So I think I think Iraq and Syria are good examples of this. So Obama came into the presidency and uh, Afghanistan too. Obama came into the presidency planning to withdraw, wanting to end all of these wars, uh, and never did for any of them. Granted, he did some things in like he he really re- uh, drew down troops in Afghanistan um, and in Iraq, but he continued these things. And then Trump came in and more or less continued Obama's strategy in Syria and in Iraq, especially against ISIS. Afghanistan. So, in Afghanistan, absolutely. He's talking about how we're going to get out of there and we're not. And whether or not you think that that's a good thing, it is an example of foreign policy remaining pretty fixed. Sure. In other places, too, I mean, I think our foreign policy is fairly weak in Latin America and in Africa, but we haven't seen dramatic shifts in either of those places. They're still more or less receiving aid. Our sanctions on Venezuela are there. There has been a shift in Africa in terms of uh, the Trump administration no longer gives any money for um, anything contraception related or family planning money like for family planning. Um, I don't really want to get into that because that's a very contentious issue. Um, but that has been a distinct change in a lot of countries, uh, especially developing countries, are not exactly happy about that. They've seen some changes in civil society that. I mean, are just shown to be impacts of lessening USAID in that aspect. Yes, absolutely. And, but I will say that I think that you can put that as an example of just genuine policy debate. Sure, sure. And as opposed to this kind of partisan foreign policy. Absolutely, yeah. That you would get that during the Cold War, that yeah. type of a switch. Uh, you know, if if our policy had already been that case. Uh, but... And, and there was a switch to an extent with our policy towards Cuba. Um, but I, I'd also probably venture to say that in, t- in the f- scope of foreign policy, our relations with Cuba are not exactly tier one, two, or three. Absolutely, yeah. Um, which still, so either way, and I think, I think while there's been some talk of changes with our relationship with Europe, um, I think more or less it's the case. There's been, you know, him, Trump not saying anything about Article 5, but I think that's more Trump as a person Opposed than to, Republicans yeah, changing sure. their stance on Europe. And I mean, I feel like we also can continue to list different examples for the next couple hours if we Absolutely. wanted to. So, I mean, going back to this is like, how do you think we can resolve this kind of partisanship? So there's there's the academic sense. So both you and I have been in events where they've talked about this problem, and I, th- I think that people are recognizing that this is a problem. So one thing that they talk about is just people need to be more educated. So uh, one study that I think is interesting to talk about was that people who, p- the closer you put Ukraine to, the further you put Ukraine on a map, like if you were asked to put Ukraine on a map, a blank map, the further you put it away from Ukraine where it actually was, the more likely you were to think the United States should respond militarily when Russia started intervening there in 2014. Interesting. And so what does that mean? It means that there is a large population of people who are both geographically unaware, but then also f- foreign policy unaware of what that actually means. 
Because getting involved in Ukraine was not as simple as, oh, it's in the middle of Africa. Yeah, let's just go help them out. When in reality, it's in Russia's backyard. Absolutely. I mean, just beyond that, I don't beyond territory and beyond just you know general foreign policy. I think it's partly educating the broader U.S. voter on just the sheer importance of the international organizations and the system that the United States essentially wrote, like the Bretton Woods. Yeah, all of that is so pivotally important to U.S. success and you know longevity of our system. And just really stressing the importance of that to everyone so you don't have people going, well, we, we pay for the UN, but it doesn't do anything for us. It's it's broader than that, and it's more important than that. And I think a lot of just, I mean, the broad education on foreign policy is important, and geography is obviously important, but just really, like, I'm not sure how to do it, uh, but giving people, like, an in-depth understanding of foreign policy was is really, I think, how the key or maybe not everyone but at least like if you come into the senate or you come into the congress in general it's like hey you get to take a class now and it's called foreign policy and we're gonna talk about it for a while and then you're gonna understand and maybe we won't have partisanship so i think i think success in this realm relies a lot on educating the country educating the voter the constituent um and there's there's a lot lacking, I would say, in our civic education currently. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think it was much stronger during the Cold War at the same time that par- uh, politics did stop at the water's edge. I would say parts of it. Sure. I mean, it, there was a during the Cold War, we had a hefty bit of U.S. propaganda interspersed in our civic it education. It was propaganda, but people are being taught what Congress does, why it's important to vote, what that all means. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, for sure. Um and so, so I get, that definitely starts there. I think we definitely need to improve our civic education. I think that that will go a long way in addressing some of these problems. However, that statement is so much easier said than done. So what's a near-term fix so that we don't become just the uh, country of flip-flops? Everyone start to listen to the Wirecast. Well, that's the first step, obviously. I don't, I don't even know why we don't just publicly broadcast this immediately i mean partially that's a joke but it's partly not i think it, it would go a long way to have the average voter kind of take their own education into their own hands and just kind of work to develop an interest in these issues so you don't have so many single topic voters absolutely um but i think historically you've seen no matter how many times people try to push for that it never really turns out the way that they like it to yeah that's fair so the other thing that I think needs to happen, and again, this is a big wish list and a hard one, is that there really needs to be a fundamental shift in how politicians talk about politics. Um, I think I think that I think the TPP is an interesting example of this. So when it came out, even though it was originally a Bush policy, a lot of Republicans started criticizing it. What was interesting was that you do just like a phrase search. So like sentence by sentence rundown of the entire treaty and over 80, a high percentage of it, I don't remember the exact number, was literally word for word from other treaties the United States already signed, whether it's NAFTA or other uh, free trade agreements. And yet politicians started criticizing it as being bad for the country. And I don't think that I mean, I think there's fair criticisms that you could always level any international treaty. 
There are ways to improve them, absolutely. However, the political rhetoric that starts surrounding things like this become such a serious problem when a treaty that is ostensibly written by the United States, as you were saying too about international organizations, we're pretty much the author of Bretton Woods. We're pretty much the author of the TPP. Yet we act like we're not. Like these things that were essentially our work are actually bad for us and that we, for some reason, drafted a policy that wouldn't actually benefit us. Some, I think some people just like to play the victim card. Right. But I think that's, I think that's a problem. I think yeah. that that's a huge shift that needs to happen. And it's a incredibly difficult one. That's like a cultural shift at this point in terms of how ingrained the partisanship of politics has become just kind of in day-to-day life for people like that is, that's going to be a difficult shift. And maybe that's, you know, it's not a shift we're going to see in the next 10 years, but maybe we start educating the youngins now. <laughs> and then in, you know, when they're 18, uh, they go, no, we're not going to stand for this kind of partisan politics that uh, everyone is doing. And they're going to start a new conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, if we're good to get to bottom of the question of how to resolve partisanship and foreign policy or partisanship, generally, the two are clearly interrelated. Um, partisanship grew substantial. Partisanship and foreign policy grew probably parallel with uh, just general partisanship. And so, I mean, there needs to be some form of break. A new path needs to be charted away from this partisanship. Otherwise, I think problems in foreign policy and just our problems generally um, are not going to be resolved very easily. And that's that's not good for the United States people. It's not good for the United States as a country. It's not good for the world because I do think that we're an overwhelmingly positive force. Absolutely. In the world. So anything else on partisan foreign policy? I don't think so. Great. So before I wrap up... Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's listened to the Wirecast so far this season. Uh, we'll be back again in the fall, although Connor and I will not be there uh, since we both graduated. Congratulations, Connor. Thank you. Congratulations to you, Sam. Thank you. Um, but thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you subscribing. Um, hopefully you're sharing with your friends. Hopefully you're just enjoying it. If that's all you're doing, um, we really appreciate that. I also want to take this opportunity since I actually have a microphone to say uh, how thankful I am to everyone that's ever been involved with The Wire as a reader, as an editor, as a writer, as um, someone who shared it, interacted with it on Facebook, anything. Uh, this, this has been a project that started out of a blog for a different club and has grown to be a f- massive magazine with over 50 uh, staff members and growing um, this is just our first real year, and we published a lot of really amazing stuff. Uh, so it's really been a pleasure to be running it for so long, to be involved with it, to see it grow. Um, and a lot of that is due to you. So thank you so much. Thank you to everybody. Um, I've really enjoyed being part of this. And I'm looking forward to seeing The Wire thrive in the next years. Yeah, me too. We've got a great cast or a great staff coming and to do amazing things. I believe the Wirecast will continue to thrive and everyone, all our listeners will very much enjoy. The yeah, maybe we'll call it. in and just bother you more with our voices. <laughs> uh, 
Um, all right, with that, I'll, I'll finish our wrap-up. The Wirecast would like to thank WSUM, UW-Madison Student Radio. We'd also like to state the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. These opinions are only held by the guests on the show and not The Wire, which takes no formal positions. This episode is produced by me and Connor Heidi, and The Wirecast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us five stars, and share with a friend. Uh, we'll be back again in the fall, so we'll be on a short hiatus. Um, but if you have any feedback or want to get more involved with The Wire, email us at thewire at polysidewits.edu. Visit us online at thewire.wits.edu. And once again, thank you sincerely. You're the best. The Wire has been an amazing